Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Be There in Five podcast. Heads up, this episode, I ended up dividing this into three parts. You might have seen on Patreon, I put up a part two rough draft. That's just kind of the perk of supporting the podcast. Sometimes I'll put up draft episodes, which you might think I record this all in one pass. It actually takes me days to put these together. And um, what I'll often do is like speak through straight through for a really long time and then go back and figure out like what worked, what didn't chop it up, summarize it, et cetera, and try to make it a little bit more coherent, believe it or not, for this podcast. So this um, section is is an hour and this is where I read some of the emails, some of the response, issue some of the corrections about the church itself, talk about how Rachel Parcell reached out to me. Uh, talk about some of the things I uncovered reading more about the church and um, some of the emails I got in support of and against what I had talked about. I think it's important to show both sides of the coin. I want to be fair. And I also want to be able to use my platform for the things I care about. And I think there are elements of you know equality and human rights that deserve to be spoken about as it relates to this overarching topic of uh, organized religion. And um, also, I think a lot of you are probably even from the get-go were only here to listen to me talk about like you know some of the scandals as it relates to bloggers that fall under the umbrella of being members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints whether or not that has to anything to do with the scandal itself but a coincidence nonetheless so in episode 3 I will go over those scandals this episode I still think is really helpful context and it helps bridge between the two topics and even though it's not light and breezy to talk about things like the, you know, LGBTQ youth suicide rates in states with a high concentration of Mormons, I still think it's important to read studies like that and to address problems like that and to all be aware of some of the darker implications of any organization that has hard and fast rules that impede on somebody's basic rights. And also, I want to give credit to a lot of the things that I was incorrect about. I go more into depth on this on Patreon. Believe it or not, this isn't a bridge version, but this one's an hour. And then the next hour will be just talking about the uh, scandals as it relates to like Freckled Fox and uh, Ashley Swenson and some of those things that I by no means want to make a spectacle of uh, because they are inherently sad, but that also just so happened to be things that they very openly talked about on their platform that I can kind of summarize and add some additional commentary to. I don't think I realized how much interest there would be in this topic. And I needed a minute to read more, to think straight, to listen to Taylor Swift's album and to do justice to a broader topic that I think a lot of people are interested in that I guess doesn't get talked about a ton on podcasts. And uh, I really care about making it a good use of your time and about being as fair as I can be, but also not foregoing elements of my own personal beliefs, given that this is my platform. I really have no agenda here other than that I am one of you and that I find all this really fascinating to read. And if there's a way we can talk about it in a public format that's semi-productive and semi-entertaining, then I think that that's awesome. And I really want to do right by you guys because I think a lot of the fascination is rooted in our perception of a lot of bloggers that are a part of the church have these startling, startling similarities. And that was kind of what I was initially aiming to uncover, but there's just so many layers to it. And I, if you're here and if you're willing, why not, why not dig deeper? I am nothing if not thorough. And I love that you guys are appreciative and respectful of that because I think a lot of uh, other podcasts do brevity better. But here at Be There in Five, I like to consider myself the official sponsor of Internet Rabbit Holes. And for those of you that love a rabbit hole as much as I do, I hope I uh, succeed in indulging you further. So anyway, I hope you enjoy this episode. Please let me know your thoughts. Um, you send an email to podcast at betherein5.com. Follow me at Be There in 5 on Instagram. I look forward to hearing from you. I appreciate your patience. Stay tuned for after Mormon Mommy Bloggers. I'll put up the Heather McMahon episode, which you, I know you guys will love, as she is our most beloved social media star on a comedian actress on an infinite rise. And it was such a joy to talk to her. All sorts of fun stuff coming up. So please stick with us at the Be There in 5 podcast. And I hope you enjoy this episode. And I sing with all my might. She said, tell me, are you a Christian child? And I said, ma'am, I am tonight, walking in Memphis. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Be There in Five podcast. 
This is the Mormon Mommy Blogger Deep Dive Part 2, and I am Kate, your host. I'm a former corporate marketer turned entrepreneur turned podcaster turned author turned pop culture commentator, and really I'm no different from any of you. If you're here, I assume you are similar in that you love a lurk. You, you live, laugh, love lurk. I like to spend many hours deep in a deep scroll on my phone late, late into the night and just examine what my, what my gal pals are up to. And by my gal pals, I mean a bunch of bloggers that have no idea who I am. And nor did I ever think I would be talking about them in a professional capacity. But here we are. As I've said before, I just think it's interesting that there's so much going on with bloggers, period, not just of any, you know, geography, faith, demographic, whatever. but. They seem a little bit off limits because they're real people and not celebrities, kind of guarded by the default assumption of privacy. And, you know, when you become a an Internet personality in somewhat of an uncharted territory and you're in your early 20s and life is a hell of a lot simpler and your public persona is dependent on the disclosure disclosure of private details. As you get older, you get married, you have kids, you, you know, move on in your life or career or whatever. I would imagine at a point you get into your 30s and onward and you're like, oh, like I, I, I need I need boundaries. I need lines drawn. I don't want my income to be dependent on the things that are sacred to me. And I think I would have been more open too when I was like in my younger years. And I'm fascinated by these bloggers for several reasons. But one of them is kind of the unknown career trajectory. And I should add, too. You know, I a big reason why I started talking about influencers and kind of pop culture and people in the digital space is when I quit my job and my business took off and I was faced with, you know, needing to self-promote because any small business owner, any person trying to make it isn't paying for ads. You you leverage free media and that is that is earned media, that is social media. And when I got to that point and I had to tap dance online to get people to pay attention to me relative to these people that were just soaring flying there's not a star in heaven that they can't reach with their you know personal brands with their fab fit fun boxes with their you know memory foam mattresses and gummies and fertility bracelets i mean when i was watching people hawk this stuff and make a fortune and have people just follow their every word i kind of you know for the longest time made fun of it i was like this is so stupid this is so easy what kind of training or skill set or whatever does this uh, require and you know i was quickly uh put in my place following that sort of corporate snobbery um in terms of how i looked at influencer careers because i used to also work with uh, companies with advertisers that needed to use influencer marketing social media marketing as a component of their media plan and it was you know it's so convoluted price wise interactions with people are all over the place it just is always, you know, it, it, my impression of it at the at the at the onset of my interest was to completely trivialize it relative to other careers. When I got into the place where I actually had to be part of it, I realized it was so hard. It's so embarrassing when you first start because your friends and family are like, you OK, girl, like, why are you talking to your camera? And it's like really hard to get people to care about you. And beyond that, it's really hard to get them to stay. And you can do all the tricks and loop giveaways in the world. I did a lot of loop giveaways. I think my account is almost rid of bots, but I miss them every day. It's just it's just not easy to make it on Instagram or as a social media star or to start a blog anymore. And I say this because I'm a I'm a I'm still a skeptic, but I respect it from a business standpoint because imagine entering into an industry and successfully becoming a millionaire off of a career path that literally had no blueprint, literally had no precedence, that you kind of trailblazed and created the business model as you went. I think a lot of these original bloggers from like 2010, 2011, et cetera, like they really did kind of pioneer this new industry that for better or for worse is a form of entertainment and is a form of influence. And I, even on my days where I'm so frustrated, I know I'd miss them if they were gone. I know it's not going anywhere, even on the basis of having you know seen these big media buys and understanding how costly you know TV spots are, huge digital buys, how costly activations are. There's so many forms of marketing that 
or literal fortune. And even though a chunk of money sounds like a lot to throw at somebody for an Instagram post or a brand partnership, it really is economical in terms of the, you know, the exposures you get for the amount you pay relative to a lot of traditional media. So advertisers love it. And I think advertisers, that revenue stream is what is really keeping this alive because I think some people live off of affiliate fees, but I think the brand partnerships are what make the serious money. And the following is what gets you to a place where you can kind of take the risk on creating your own brand and making money that will live beyond your social media career, which I think is the smartest thing anybody can do. And I hugely respect anybody who has done that. It's it's not wise to put all your eggs in your Instagram basket. And, you know, I talked a lot about Rachel Parcell last week. Her Nordstrom collection has done so well. Something Navy's has done so well. Something Navy just got, you know, $10 million uh, investment. And, um, you know, I know people have different thoughts about different bloggers, but, you know, it's like it is what it is. I'd rather see women pursuing, you know, a business out of this influence than just making being an influencer at their business. I think that that's a great example. If you're going to influence people to do something, influence them to go out on their own, get more women in business, get more female entrepreneurs. I think you have to be realistic about your starting point. I think it's imperative that people know what's apples and what's oranges in terms of where they started fiscally, where they started, um, you know, with their family life, with childcare, all of that. That is, you know, one place that I struggle because I want to support people. But, you know, given the nature of the highlight reel, when you're being inspiring, are you get, essentially giving people misinformation about how you're able to do what you do and then not setting them up for success? So it's a, to me, it's a hybrid of responsibility and influence. But all that to say, I, you know, I wrote a book called Twinkle Twinkle Social Media Star that I wrote. It's a poem about what if nursery rhyme characters at Instagram. It's a mom teaching their child as a joke um, how to be an influencer and I, that I wrote when I was having like an awful day. And I was like, this is too hard. I'm never going to get people interested in me. I I honestly made a decision, you know, my company Be There in Five, it started because of these doormats I created five, six years ago. And like my legacy isn't in flooring. I want to be I wanted to be a writer, a creative entrepreneur. I want to start new businesses. I wanted to um keep moving forward and, you know, to get people to follow me and not the mats, I had to make that shift, as I always say. And uh I just I think I have an interesting perspective on this because I kind of have seen this from different viewpoints from the advertiser and brand perspective from the consumer and critic perspective and from the participant and perspective i also am kind of building a public persona i'm trying to sell more books i'm getting advertisers on this podcast and i can really see all sides of it i can see when people are being too judgmental and it's not fair i can see when people passing judgment is totally fair I can see that the art of influence is a it's a real career. And just because it's different and it's new doesn't mean it's wrong and doesn't mean it should be seen as something that's not a legitimate job relative to others. Because when I tell you there's so much behind the scenes, like to get these partnerships, I'm shocked. But I I and I'm just being honest here. I'm not like blowing smoke. I just want to be fair and present all sides of it because I have had a hell of a time, despite, you know, this podcast doing well, getting people on board with it because I'm not already famous. I've literally like brought my numbers to, you know, different places that are comparable to other people that are represented by other brands, other networks, whatever. And and basically been told, like, come back when you're more famous. And I'm like, cool, cool. Easy enough. You know, every time I shop a book idea, I'll get notes back from literary editors. And in my proposal, I'll have like the book and the first couple paragraphs or like the explanation before getting to sample chapters and whatever. And I'll get emails back saying, great, move the third paragraph up to the top. The third paragraph says, you know, about me, my business, my following, my podcast, all the things with audience. And even, you know, to me, that's a bit disheartening given that it's literally saying put popularity, put audience, put you know, all of that above content. And it is not the most, you know, charming argument for what matters to people in terms of the correlation of quality and popularity. It makes sense because people want to spend less dollars on marketing. People want you to work hard for them. And when I tell you in 
to do anything on your own, an audience is important. I am hugely understating that. And, you know, I don't, that's the irony is I keep getting told that. I'm like, I don't want to be famous. Q Mason Ramsey, if I want to be famous for something, I want to be famous for talking to you or famous for you reading my books. It's not really about my face, but anymore I'm learning it's impossible, you know, to be there out on your own and not incorporate a face behind it or a video or whatever. It's just so, it's just a lot and it's interesting and I'm learning a lot as I go and I'll always share it with you and try to be as uh, transparent as I can because I don't know. I know that I probably like, I don't want to ever seem like I'm talking about myself too much. On the one hand, it's my podcast. But on the other hand, I in- incorporate some of these stories when I have personal experience that can, you know, either support or refute or provide some context to the topic at hand. And in this case, I would like to think I can use my experience in different viewpoints to dive into this topic a little deeper and not in a way that's just like gossipy or snarky, but in a way that's kind of you know, trying to analyze it and and criticize it in a way that is somewhat fair to both sides. The the reader in me comes out more often than I probably should if I wanted to be like unbiased, which I'm just not, as you'll hear later when uh, we talk about the freckled fox gun incident. Um, But I think that too often the people that are talking about influencers, reporting on them, interviewing them, the articles I read are just they're so detached and they're not written by people that are actual consumers, followers, uh, you know, absorbers of these people's lives, information and influence. And I think that a lot of the literature surrounding how influencers are positioned are it's because the people talking about them aren't that interested and they themselves trivialize it. I actually think it's widely entertaining. I think it's a hugely important form of entertainment. And I'm so attached to half of these people because I watch their kids grow up. It's just like, it's unlike anything else. It's unlike any other public figure we've ever seen. And I love to talk about it. And I love that you guys love to talk about it. And the other piece for this that's interesting is, you know, for so long, you follow people, you're far removed from them. As I've said, you talk about them like they're not there as if they're kind of, you know, a traditional celebrity. But then you talk about them and they reach out to you when it's on a more public platform. And that's been an interesting experience for me. For example, Rachel Parcell did reach out to me. She, unsurprisingly, took the high road, very nice, very cordial, and just, you know, gave me some corrections about where I was incorrect about the church, which I totally respect. And they are corrections I will explain because I respect everyone's religious freedom. And if I'm going to talk about something, I at least want to talk about it correctly out of respect for their faith. But also, you know, that was so fascinating to me, like, you put you put me in a situation where somebody you know is talking about their perception of my display of wealth versus their you know perception of my church i'm the kind of shallow that would you know just come guns blazing being like i have every right to spend thousands of dollars on a faucet that looks like an elaborate woodwind instrument that i first saw in taylor 73 questions Vogue interview that he placed in my laundry room that's nicer than most people's kitchens and even nicer than my own butler's pantry that's nicer than most people's kitchens with a panoramic view of the Utah mountains. Like, I would defend that because if you work hard and you got the cash, live well. My God, by all means. I think as a spectator, as a critic, I am always interested in examining the line between, you know, uh, showing off and sharing. But I think in her case, as I said last time, the root of my fascination is in how beautiful everything is. And I know nobody's perfect. And I have to give Rachel credit because she's talking about been talking about her, you know, journey with secondary infertility this week. And I feel like I've been seeing stuff that's like, oh, this feels off limits for the Internet. But I wholeheartedly disagree because, A, so many people have suffer from infertility issues. The more normalized it can be, the better The more people feel comfortable having a dialogue, the better. And the more people that maybe don't feel comfortable talking about it in their immediate circles that can rely on people they look up to or rely on people whose lives they think look perfect and who are having relatable problems, I'm all for it. Those are the things that I really respect about influencers is the element of relatability. And I think that where a lot of people can sometimes judge, especially some of the Utah-based bloggers who have what seems to be more of a perfect life. When they let us in on some of their struggles, I do think that's it's important. 
And while it's totally their decision and it's not necessary or something we should demand, when they're comfortable, I think that it has a lot of power for good. And I think that a lot of times, you know, the the problem with the Internet and the problem with opening up to the Internet is that people will poke holes in absolutely anything. And, you know, I can't speak to this situation not having experienced it. But, you know, if you're struggling with infertility, sharing your journey or doing IVF, people will come at you for not adopting. If you are having secondary infertility issues, people will come at you for being so lucky you already have kids. There's always something, there's always a different perspective that's going to disagree with you. But I think the important thing to remember is that anytime somebody is choosing to share more of their story about something that is probably difficult for them, it's probably not easy to admit to themselves, their families, but also publicly, I think it's especially important to remember, given what we've talked about in terms of how important the role of motherhood is within, you know, the the, the church's culture, I really respect her talking about it not being naturally easy for everybody. And I'm sure it's all the more difficult when, you know, that is seen as fulfilling a major aspect of the gospel and of God's plan. You know, I think a lot of religious people connect motherhood in some way, shape or form. But what I've noticed from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is that this is something that is so, so, so important and revered and is very much encouraged. So, yeah, all that to say... I just think it's important to remember with anybody you're interacting with ever, person, day-to-day, online, whatever. Any therapist will tell you pain is pain, struggle is struggle. And to dismiss it as not being as important relative to something else is to not productively work through it because we only know our own experience. And that doesn't mean that sometimes people's experience won't be like off-putting, won't offend you, won't you know, it won't seem like they should be more self-aware about the relative importance of it. But I do think it's better as humans to come from an empathetic place of if this is something you're struggling with, it's not my place to tell you that you're not struggling with it or to tell you that it's not valid because nobody, again, should tell you how to feel. And we've got to stop doing that to one another. And I know I'm certainly a guilty party. But all that to say, I just wanted to call that out because I think that part of my point was like, you know, the, your platform, the influence comes in so many forms. And while it's great to tell people what to buy, I also think it's important to be a, a human. And and I, I just don't want to discount for a second um, that sort of effort in, you know, sharing more about your story, especially when I was kind of talking about how that seemed to be a an edict of the church that would pressure a lot of people into perhaps hiding those problems. So, yeah, all that to say, I I did, you know, I think her defending the church is very telling in terms of how uh, devout and how, you know, the defense of the religion is such a major priority. What's been so interesting, I've gotten so many emails from um, current members of the church, ex-members, which I uh, read in more detail on Patreon because... What I realized in the last episode that I didn't do well is separating the culture from the doctrine of the church. And also, given that 62.2% of people in Utah are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that is a level of homogenous that is, it's unprecedented, really. Like, you know, having a 60% plus number of, of people in one, you know, overarching umbrella faith like Christianity is not uncommon in the States, but to have over 60% be from the same church denomination sector, whatever you call it, is is pretty unusual. And especially for the, you know, way the church kind of is so integrated in people's lives that are members of it. This is not a go to church on Sunday thing. This is a super involved, constant activities, constant responsibilities. Life revolves around the church. Community revolves around the church. And inevitably, I think when you have a lack of uh, cultural, racial, religious diversity, people are going to be alarmingly similar. And regardless of the church or not, that happens. But as it relates to this discussion, as I, I never really wanted it to make it about the religion itself, but rather see if there were any dots I could connect about, you know, why people were so beautiful and wealthy and well-behaved and why their kids sat for pictures so nicely and why everything looked so easy and why everything seemed so hard for the rest of us. And 
it's interesting. It, it's I think that one of my broader conclusions is that it's less about the religion and more about the culture and a homogenous environment inevitably breeds. And that when that baseline culture are high income individuals who participate in a faith that prioritizes, you know, cleanliness and being polished and purity and chastity and are conservative in nature and, you know, follow rules that were created in the, you know, mid 19th century, you know, it kind of all makes sense. And two of my broader findings, having dug into the website, because that's what I did on the Patreon episode, I was like, you know, I didn't do a good job of separating the doctrine and the culture. I have, you know, a handle on the culture from myself and from the interpretations of people that have emailed me. But I wanted to know, you know, straight from the horse's mouth, like, what does the, the church actually say about this? I found some things I agreed with. I found a lot of things I did. I disagreed with. Um, and I go more into detail on that. It didn't seem appropriate for the broader iTunes because I'm not really trying to give any commentary on a religion. It's more so me trying to figure out how I would respond and react to certain messaging, knowing how I responded to things, you know, I heard when I was young at these church camps that would like dangle me from rock walls until I recited a Bible verse off the top of my head. And it was it was interesting. Well, I should loop back. So the two things Rachel said I got wrong is that A, that they their official name is no longer Mormon, no longer LDS. You're supposed to say the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I respect at the very least, you know, using the proper name, of course. Uh, then I went to look up and see the official statement on this in the general conference. There, They have two a year of 2018. They did not like that the name of the Savior was often extracted from the church, the church's official title. So you can say the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or Church of Jesus Christ or the church. So as much as I can, and I'm sure I'll slip up, I'll say the church. It's confusing because even like the people that emailed me that are in the church still call themselves Mormon or LDS. I was watching them. Obviously, how could I miss the, the, the video of the week? No, not Taylor Swift's lover, but Jordan Page's baby announcement. She is a member of the church. She lives in Utah. Um, she married her husband young. She is roughly my age, maybe a little older. She has uh, six kids, and we knew she announced since the last podcast she was pregnant with baby number seven. What I did not see coming, I audibly gasped. I'm a true sucker for um, a clickbait situation. Well, first I was a, a bit concerned because the teaser was like over the weekend. You know, Monday is a big reveal, but they seemed distraught in all the footage. And like when they were talking about it, and I was like... Oh, gosh, are we really going to make something about like your child's health or safety? Like, you know, in the form of a teaser or something clickbaity, like I was getting frustrated, but it turns out they're having twins. So instead of baby number seven, they are having babies number seven and eight. Now, when people have a lot of kids, I always try to form it in my head as like some of my favorite pop cultural figures. So, you know, because when you're at a five, you're like, OK, like they've got a partridge family. When you're at a six, you're like, OK, that's, you know, roughly a Brady Bunch. Minus Alice, but, you know, she g gives more than she takes. Right. And then seven, we we've got a full Von Trapp. Um, you know, I want to be a Liesel, but let's be honest, I'm more of a Brigitte. Even at seven, you have S Club seven. Th there's a lot of great groups of seven. The, the problem is whenever I get to eights is when I panic. Eight is Kate plus eight. Eight is Octomom. Eight kids is something that was completely normal in the 1950s. It, it just it seems truly Im impossible, unimaginable to me. Now, I mean, as a person who's allegedly equipped to, to do so, I can't believe how many kids women used to have. I mean, truly unbelievable. They're, what champions? I mean, a lot of us exist because of the, those baby boomers. And most of us, I don't think, want that many kids. Slash, you know, Prince Harry tells us we shouldn't have them due to climate change. But that's a story for a different day. What was I talking about? Oh, yeah. OK, the second thing, Rachel mentioned that I said wrong. And, you know, I'm, I want to do these corrections because she was like largely the subject of my last podcast. All lovingly, of course, I am a fan. But as I say to you, I said to her, it, it's an interesting situation where as a person, I understand it's not fun to be talked about. Like, nobody wants that. I never want to hurt anybody's feelings. Like, that's not my goal. I'm not like a comedian. I'm not trying to make jokes at anybody's expense. But 
I feel entitled to my version of observational humor, given that a person's income hinges on my engagement. And when we talk about people, you know, in a way that hopefully isn't overly mean spirited, you know, I think it's important to understand when, you know, it shouldn't be a surprise that people care about what you're up to because your business couldn't survive if we didn't care about what you're up to. It's interesting. As I said, I'd watch the hell out of that Netflix show. Fingers crossed. I so it's it's a funny thing for me because I'm a human who doesn't want to hurt people's feelings. I'm also not here to shift my perspective in fear of people reaching out to me. But uh, as I mentioned before, I legitimately agree and disagree with a lot of things that a lot of people do. And I think we all kind of do. I don't think we any of us should blindly follow anybody. And um, so, yeah, I was totally receptive to the corrections, totally impressed of how sweet she was. And honestly, all the emails I got, I was just overwhelmed by how kind everybody who was part of the church was truly so nice being like, thank you for not being rude. Thank you for not making a mockery. Thank you for trying to at least talk about it in a way that was fair. But here are all the things you said that were incorrect. You know what I mean? People could have been a lot more mad. And I honestly respect whatever element of of peace, of conflict uh, management or whatever is taught, because clearly that to me was a was a trend in terms of the kindness bestowed upon me that honestly, I probably didn't even deserve. Uh, So I read some of those letters on my Patreon. The other correction Rachel gave was that I kept saying they weren't Christian. I don't remember saying that and I didn't mean to because I do know they're Christians. But just to clarify you know, that I think in my head, uh, the Christian faith is kind of a either a product of Roman Catholic, Protestant, Eastern Orthodox, but the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is, uh, it, it's the restoration of the original church founded by Jesus Christ, but a lot of the canon is based on revelations uh, by a man named Joseph Smith, who was the founder of the church in 1830. I, so th- while different from a lot of other Christian denominations, for example, having four scriptural texts as opposed to just the Bible, among other things, there's differences, but they are under the umbrella of Christianity. Apologies if that was not clear. So moving on, I did want to read um, a couple excerpts from emails to clarify a couple things because, you know, I got some emails that were like, agreeing with what i said and some that weren't and again that's why i made that patreon because without a without consensus without consensus i was like why am i hearing such vastly different experiences but what i realized is that the major driver of people's experience within the church was if you're inside utah idaho a higher concentration of uh, members within the church in general or if you are outside of those markets and while you know everybody seems to have such a positive association with the teachings and with their experience. I think that they, what varied was the pressures, especially women felt to have kids to get married young and um, with the commentary about working outside the home. The one thing I should read that I should clarify, to be fair, is people said, um, one is, I am a stay-at-home mom with a master's degree in finance who chose to leave corporate America because I didn't want to juggle childcare in my career. I, like other women of my faith, made this choice on my own without any pressure either way from my husband or family. One person said, um, women 100% have a choice. The church wants all women to feel validated, whether they work or stay at home, have kids or don't have kids. Honestly, I have felt more honored, validated, empowered by my church than I have by social media. I firmly believe that God loves his daughters 100% equally as he loves his sons. Um, This person also said, I nor anyone I've asked about this have ever been taught that I needed to beautify myself or look good to get into heaven. The closest thing I could say was having a face mask night with the girls from church. I was taught that I should be modest and not get tattoos because my body is a precious gift from God and I want to respect that. However, I was never told that my makeup or how I fix my hair was important. I understand that maybe the culture of members of the church might make it seem like it is important if you look at their Instagram, but it's not central to our teachings. So I think that's important to note. The beauty aspect is not central to teachings. When I did look into this, the uh, I think it was the Allure article mentioned, like, if you go on their website, there's makeup tutorials. The makeup tutorials are actually a part of, like, the missionary pamphlet. And, like, to be fair, whether you're going to, like, a camp, a mission, a trip, whatever, like, it, it, having a dress code is pretty standard. Um, 
you know, it's conservative and it's a little bit, it's kind of not funny to read through, but like I read one riveting article entitled, can I wear a cap sleeve? Short answer. No, you can't. Um, So it was, you know, I think part of that uh, viewpoint was a little bit unfair. It's not like they're teaching every person that goes to church that they need to, you know, conceal bacon brighton before they get to the pearly gates that would be messed up but as this person said i understand that the culture of the members of the church might make it seem like it is and another person said um we have to separate the culture within the church versus the actual doctrine of the church completely agree it is definitely not doctrine that you must look a certain way to get into heaven but culturally we put way too much emphasis on it there is no scripture that says you must have children, but culturally, the, culturally, those that choose not to might be treated differently. Uh, this cultural influence is mostly where higher populations of members of our church are, like Utah, Idaho, etc. So just some like supporting evidence uh, from people that say the beauty aspect, it's not essential to your uh, salvation, so to speak. But, you know, I don't know. It, it's it's definitely it seems to be a priority. And that's not something I can put hard and fast data behind. but. I do think like one thing I cannot figure out for the life of me is, you know, especially to the first comment of the person saying I was taught I should be modest, not get tattoos because my body is a precious gift from God. And I want to respect that gift. And I read this over and over from people. And then, of course, there's the hard and fast rules about, um, you know, tattoos and piercings and how it be essentially being seen as graffiti on your body's, you know, your body's being a perfect temple. but like. Given the statistics about the higher levels of plastic surgeons in Salt Lake City, which has is, you know, one of the highest concentrations of members of the church, while correlation is not causation, it does beg the question of, okay, well, you can't graffiti the church, but you can remodel the church. Like, what you know what I mean? Like, what about going under general anesthesia and having silicone implanted in your chest or getting a rhinoplasty or modifying your God given body parts is okay? Those are the things I don't really get that I don't have a lot of clarity on. My conjecture is similar to the caffeine thing. A lot of people think that um, members of the church can't have caffeine, but actually, per Jordan Page's uh, YouTube video, it's the specific things that the prophet said in the 19th century that they refrained from. So coffee was called out, tea was called out, you know, alcohol, smoking, drugs, whatever. But because they follow so specific to the scripture, I gather, it's they that's why they can have Red Bull and Diet Coke, because coffee was specified, not necessarily caffeine. And um, there's also a lot of interesting literature about how Diet Coke was like officially approved or like, you know, soda was recently approved in recent years, like formally by the church, but also BYU has a giant contract with Coca-Cola now. Um, so, you know, w- w- you know, chicken egg, who who the heck knows? But I think that perhaps the plastic surgery thing is more of a function of, well, we're told not to do these specific things, but if these specific things aren't mentioned, maybe they're on the table. I don't know. That's an uneducated guess on my part. But I guess that's just confusing to me. It's the messaging of you're perfect the way you are, but if you want to modify it, it's fine, but only modify it in the ways that, you know, we say you can. Uh, But anyway, I thought all that was interesting. Um, You know, the commentary about women having a choice to have kids and whatnot, I have mixed feelings about because it's not in the scripture. But while it's not in the four, like, texts, I think a lot of what is practiced is centered on these general conferences that are twice a year. And I found a lot of the information on the conferences to be really interesting, uh, specifically one from last year that talked about, you know, one's role as a mother, because I I don't know. And I'm interested in this, too, because as a person that, like, do, you know, doesn't feel super maternal and I put myself in this situation, I'm just curious of, like, how I'd feel upon hearing certain messaging and there were a few excerpts that I thought were pretty telling in terms of all of our, you know, I think a lot of our question with our fascination with this group of people is the volume of kids and the age in which they have them relative to kind of what is more typical for our society today. And um, there was one, you know, conference talk that was from 2010 called Mothers and Daughters. And, you know, some part of my as I was going through this, I was like, oh, well, should I use things that are way more recent? 
But if you're taking things literally from 1830, I think 2010 is pretty safe. It said, um, teach your daughters to find joy in nurturing children. This is where their love and talents can have the greatest eternal significance. Consider that in this context, President Harold B. Lee's injunction that the most important work you will ever do will be within the walls of your own homes. That's from teachings of the president of the church in 2000. Um, And then in October 2018, for a more modern take, uh, this one, I was reading the transcript, and this one said, Children are are our most precious gift from God, our eternal increase. Yet we live in a time when many women wish to not have no part in the bearing and nurturing of children. Many young adults delay marriage until temporal needs are satisfied. The average age of our church's members' marriages have increased by more than two years, and the number of births to church members is falling. The United States and other nations face a future of too few children maturing into adults to support the number of retiring adults. Over 40% of births in the United States are to unwed mothers. Those children are vulnerable. Each of these trends works against our Father's divine plan of salvation. Latter-day Saint women understand that being a mother is their highest priority, their ultimate joy. Women, for the most part, see their greatest fulfillment, greatest happiness in home and family. God planted within women something divine that expresses itself in quiet strength and refinement and peace and goodness in virtue and truth and love. All of these remarkable qualities find their truest and most satisfying expression in motherhood. The greatest job any woman will ever do will be in nurturing and teaching and living and encouraging and rearing her children in righteousness and truth. There is no other thing that will compare with that regardless of what she does. So even if it's not scripture, even if it's not in the Bible, you, you, when you're hearing things like that, what, what, what message are you getting? When somebody's presenting to you that you're, you live in a time when many women want no part in bearing and nurturing of children— and that delaying of marriage in favor of temporal needs. I mean, like, you know what I mean? That positioning is like, you're selfish if you're delaying marriage. You are hurting our father's divine plan of salvation if you're not having children. And, you know, I mean, calling children vulnerable to unwed mothers is something I cannot even get into right now. I do believe I get into that on Patreon. That's upsetting. But, you know, if I grew up hearing that being a mother should be my highest priority, my ultimate joy, uh, you know, if I grew up hearing that the gr- it's the greatest job I will ever do and there's nothing that will compare with that regardless of what I do, of course I'm going to feel pressure to have kids. Of course I'm going to feel pressure to get married young. It makes sense. So all that to say, I totally believe everybody's experience. I'm not here to tell them how to feel or how to interpret things. But it was helpful for me to separate people's impressions, people's experience from reading the actual you know, transcripts of the talks that, from what I gather, people very much look to for guidance because I was sent some by Mormons, sorry, members of the church who wanted me to understand more about them. And so, of course, then I get down a rabbit hole and I read for myself. So I say that because I want to read this next email, which sees it from a different angle because I think it's important to see both sides. And um, this, you know, hurt, hurt my heart if I'm being perfectly honest. Hi, Kate. Da, 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 da. Uh, I just wanted to reach out and thank you for the app and the way you handled the topic. I'm guessing lots of people are messaging you with corrections or complaints. So I wanted to let you know I really liked it. I appreciated hearing the perspective of someone from outside the church presented in an honest, open way without being super harsh or solely critical. I appreciated what you kept saying that you weren't there to speak for the church or to pass judgment, but also appreciated hearing that you have questions and concerns and, and the things that don't make sense. I'm 27, single female and have struggled with a lot of those feelings of inadequacy because I'm not married. Also, another aspect of the outward appearance rhetoric from the church is I'm a plus sized woman and I've struggled basically my entire life of feeling like I was letting God down because I'm overweight. It's just been within the last year that I've been able to start moving past that working through what it does and doesn't mean to be overweight or have a heavier body and work to love and accept myself as I am. Um, then I responded to her a novel length because the, 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 the no place that is supposed to be upon the foundation of loving each other, loving ourselves and Jesus, who is supposed to love us, every one of us, regardless of who we are, where we come from, how we look to be made to feel that way truly to me is 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 absolutely uh, disgusting and horrible. And I never want anybody to think that their weight, their looks their marital status is absolutely any bearing on their salvation. And I think anybody who considers themselves a child of God and a heralder of all things, love, peace, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, who says that is truly a monster. Um, 
And she said, and I asked if I could share her response. And she said, thank you so much for the encouragement. I have made so much progress, even in just the last year, to really sit back and realize that, of course, God doesn't care what my body looks like or what I weigh. He wants me to love myself and love others the way he loves all of us. One of the things that has helped me with this and other issues I've dealt with, like not being married yet, is to work to separate what is church culture and what is actual doctrine gospel. I'm hearing this a lot. Is the church telling people to separate those two things? It's interesting. Because it's not a commandment to be married by 19, it's not a commandment to be a certain way or dress certain ways. I think it is, though, for like garments, right? Um, another thing I've talked about with others is learning how to have questions about what our prophet and leaders say, that we should be working to get our own answers through prayers and not always just accept everything they say without question. And along those same lines, we should recognize there's a difference between what the prophet says during our general conference and what he says outside of that, like in magazines or talks at BYU. Conference is seen as more formal, official situation where what's said there is more like commandments talking for the Lord than those other times. That's helpful because what I just read to you, the quotes from motherhood, the quotes about children being vulnerable, vulnerable who have unwed mothers, that kind of, you know, if you're freckled fox, if you're, you know what I mean? Like, of course, you're going to get married quickly if that's the positioning. But um, also the in terms of, you know, your divine purpose being motherhood. That's from General Conference, which she's saying, you know, is seen as kind of speaking through the Lord and is closely followed. Um, I do feel very hopeful about our future and making some of these cultural changes. There's been some good conversations happening even the past couple of years that address things like the confining patriarchal teachings. And I think it was recently that the church got to the point where we have more members outside the U.S. than in it. So they are trying to make things much more inclusive to those who don't have the privileges we do, which I support. So... I support the inclusivity, obviously. Tugboat, relax. Um, so anyway, I wanted to read that, uh, you know, not only to provide a different perspective, not to support my own points, but to illustrate a broader issue of even when things aren't explicitly said, when you have a homogenous culture where, you know, ev- things appear to be very centered on keeping up with the Joneses, keeping up appearances, when you have high net worth individuals, when you have emphasis on perfection and in, in, in things looking and appearing a certain way, which no, I don't have empirical evidence for, but I have emails and I have a lot of uh, anecdotal evidence supporting, you know, kind of the aesthetic aspect. And I do want to be clear, it's not part of scripture, but I also do think it's important not to discount people that have felt very much um, ostracized as a result of not looking a certain way or having a certain relationship status. You know, there's a lot of if you want to read for yourself, a lot of literature out there is reading a handbook that explains how the singles wards work. Basically, you know, 18 to 30 is in a singles ward where they all mingle and do activities together. And the church really puts people in environments that encourages them to couple off with other members of the church. I felt at times like 31 plus were talked to like lepers. It made me infuriated as a person that falls into that group and a person that in no way thinks anybody should ever be defined by their relationship status especially because there was a lot of talk about making sure that they were still talking about the importance of the family and of bearing children in the church, but also talking to your bishop about identifying your purpose and calling. If you can't have kids, as if in the absence of having kids, you're, you know, some person lost out at sea who needs to find a reason for living. Like, that's the stuff that I just can't get behind. So I think that the important thing here is like, I want to be respectful of the religion. I so, so appreciated everybody's input. I'm so glad to hear a lot of people don't feel like they have been, you know, susceptible to these sort of pressures. But at the same time, when I read the actual information for myself, the way motherhood was spoken about, the way singles are separated by age and actively encouraged to be commingling, and the way there is general, general conference talked about, there's a concern about people getting married too late in favor of their own temporal satisfactions. And beyond that, you know, reading about how, you know, if you're LGBTQ, the good thing is you go talk to, you know, a member of the church, a church leader, a bishop, etc. They won't tell you you're a sinner. They don't believe having same-sex attraction or, you know, both sex attraction is a sin, but they do deny you of your basic rights within the church. So, if you're gay, okay, but you can't get married, you have to be celibate, and we don't believe you can have children. And while I respect people's religious freedom, I also care more about human rights, I care more about equality, and while marriage can be seen as a union within the church, it often is, I got married in a church, it is also a matter of the state, it is a matter of law, and 
Fortunately, gay marriage is legal in Utah as of, I believe, December 2013. Unfortunately, the ostracizing that must happen from families uh, is incredibly disappointing. And I do believe you get kicked out of the church. At the very least, it's not recognized. I read in the manual for missionaries in terms of who is eligible to be baptized or not. You know, couples, same, like opposite sex couples, heterosexual couples that are living together have to separate before you can be baptized. Um, you cannot be in a same sex relationship. You have to take a vow of celibacy. If you have a same sex relationship and a child within that relationship, you that child can't even be eligible to be part of the church till they're 18. So there's some very antiquated rules as it relates to basic human rights that I fundamentally can't support that I do want to draw attention to. And that I think are important to acknowledge because at, you know, a national level, LGBTQ youths are eight times at a higher risk of suicide than those who do not identify as LGBTQ. And uh, Utah alone, the in Utah alone, the leading cause of death for youths aged 10 to 17 is suicide. And that's more than 60 percent above the national average. Can that be, you know, tied to LGBTQ youths, not with empirical evidence, because it's nearly impossible to you know, gather the data about sexuality when you're looking at aggregate levels of data in terms of, of death rates, of suicide rates. But it's still incredibly sad. It's something that's incredibly important to be aware of. And the studies that have been done on, you know, the, the social science research that's been done on the correlation between youth suicide rates and their religious context in Utah specifically. I apologize if you feel like this is off topic. I mentioned this episode, I wanted to speak about some of the darker areas, just in terms of uh, being aware of uh, how some interpretations can impact people, put people at risk, how some darker things have happened among members of the church that probably have no correlation at all to being a part of the church. This is just kind of the next installment. Um, uh, you know, I think that the the important thing to note is it's very difficult to attribute death rates to specific religions at a high level. It's very difficult to attribute it to s sexuality specifically. But some of the findings in this study called Youth Suicide Rates in the Mormon Religious Context and Additional Empirical Analysis, it's by Benjamin Knoll. It's from 2016. I think it's worth a look. The, some of the key takeaways were very interesting. And the one I'll highlight is that youth in the 15 to 19 age group who live in states with heavy Mormon populations are at higher risk for suicide. You know, the youth suicides are twice as high in states with the highest level of Mormon residents compared to states with the lowest levels of Mormon residents. But it's impossible to tell from this data the religion of the teens committing suicide and if there is a link to LGBTQ. Because it's fair to say states with higher populations also ta have twice as high of a suicide rate, but you cannot say for certain that those people were members of the church or that they were LGBTQ. So there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that has to be thread to kind of, you know, create this narrative, but it's very impossible to know all of the nuances of this data. So it's important to not necessarily blame the church, but to be clear that there's a problem and it's not about condemning anybody. It's Noel, the guy who wrote this uh, research study, said he is Mormon himself. And he said it's presented to contribute to the conversation on this important topic that literally has life and death implications. It's clear there's a problem. The more information we have available, the sooner we can craft an effective solution. Obviously, there's so many things that, you know, as it relates to uh, suicide related deaths in terms of, um, you know, the factors that can contribute to it. It's it's very difficult to conduct studies on this period because obviously those who are impacted can't speak for themselves. And we know that there's so many other causes besides religious oppression, besides LGBTQ, as it relates to, you know, opioids or drinking or, you know, cyberbullying. Um, there's high gun ownership rates. There's so many things that contribute to this data, but I think it's interesting from looking at the studies where people did try to separate uh, the population concentration of those within the church relative to the risk of teens. So anyway, all that to say, something to be mindful of, whether you're inside or out of the church or whoever you come across in your life, I'm trying to not be, you know, be on soapboxes, but 
I just, you know, if this is my platform and I can share what I believe, I believe that we should all be very mindful of how at risk youths are, period, of how especially at risk youths are who are part of marginalized groups and how dangerous and damaging it is to encourage and implement messaging into someone's head who is struggling to, you know, perhaps accept themselves at times. My God, I mean, the very first place a person needs to be accepted is in their own heart. And when that is a work in progress, the very least we can do is make sure they're accepted in their homes and in their houses of worship. And to discriminate against somebody based on factors that they cannot control that were given to them by God, to suggest that God created you perfect the way you are and this unique set of attributes he gave you is also grounds by which you can be discriminated against in the house of God. It's, It's entirely hypocritical. It's unconscionable. And I think it's a conversation that needs to be revisited by any institution that thinks it's acceptable to use God against people whose God-given right is to be themselves. And I just, I don't get it, and I never will, and I just, you know, I always kind of hope it goes without saying, uh, and I know I'm just like a random podcaster, but anybody out there who is struggling with being at odds against an entity, be it your family, be it a church, whatever, you do not, in a, in a country where you have free will, where you have freedom, where you're supposed to have the same basic liberties as everyone else, You do not have to be defined by your gender, by your sexuality, by your age, by your relationship status, by your weight. These are not things by which anybody should be allowed to project your personal value onto you by a singular attribute. And if you are in a situation where you feel like you are being unfairly judged for these things, it's okay to take the gut check. It's okay to revisit what you believe. It's okay to revisit the fact that people might be doing things that you fundamentally disagree with and it's okay to doubt and it's okay to explore. Like, I just think that in this one fleeting life, whatever whatever is in store for us later on, messaging of love, of acceptance, of inclusion, I would hope has far greater impact on your salvation if that's what you believe. And anybody who suggests that your soul is, your soul's fate is a function of your relationship status, weight, ability to have children, uh, sexuality, etc. Those people are the very embodiment of the darkness that biblical scripture is always telling us we need to use faith to extinguish. And even if in, in pursuit of acceptance, you either accept yourself that the church won't change and that your family's more important to you and that you can have your own set of beliefs without rocking the boat, or if you choose to look outside of it, to, to seek, to search, to explore, to doubt, any any healthy organization should give you the free will to seek, to search, to explore, to doubt, but above all else, to feel welcome. While I was relieved this week to learn that you don't need a full contour to get into heaven, I also think it's just an important thing for all of us to remember that, you know, as cliche as it sounds, our beliefs don't make us better people. Our behavior does. Our legacy has so much less to do with our thoughts and judgments and these arbitrary rules we all follow and so much more to do with our actual tangible impact on this earth and how we treat other people and i i don't know i guess i just uh, if if i can use this platform for anything want people to feel good about themselves to find a place where they're welcome to remember that behavior will speak volumes over beliefs and to feel comfortable pushing back because Nothing else in the history of the world has ever gotten done otherwise. And sometimes it's better to not rock the boat, but sometimes it's worth it to uh, pursue some discomfort, especially if it can yield a broader result of others not having to experience that same discomfort. And I just hope people are able to have, um, you know, productive dialogues with their families and other church members and to solve for some of these issues that I've been hearing about. While a lot of it's like beautiful and uplifting and spiritual and you know brings people a lot of wisdom and peace as any religion does in the history of the world for all of time there's also a lot of darkness a lot of conflict a lot of difficulty and a lot of inevitable negative consequences that can come from restriction and come from oppression and there's some million psychological studies about the relationship between oppression at various levels and mental health and the behavioral spiritual 
cognitive cost it comes at. And you just want to make sure that it's not impacting people's self-esteem, people's life opportunities or worse, putting them in danger. And I think what's interesting, too, and I swear I'm wrapping up the second half of this will be about the more um, interesting, specific stories of people. I just think it's worth noting that, you know, when you talk about uh, sexism, racism, classism, whatever, they're they're forms of oppression at several different levels and tiers that you may notice or not notice, but they all kind of intersect to form a system. And just because people are not being oppressed at the cultural or institutional level, it doesn't mean that at a personal level, people aren't getting messaging from people based on their own values, beliefs, feelings. And even if somebody doesn't outright say, this is what I believe, this is right, this is wrong, they've received a variety of different messages throughout their life that can very well be affecting their interactions. And then beyond that, it you know goes to the interpersonal level where people are telling other people how to act, what they should do, what they should look like, how what they should believe. This is a more direct form of uh, oppressive messaging in terms of lecturing, in terms of shaming, um, in terms of insulting people that believe differently from them. And then going further is, you know, you have the institutional level when there's policies, procedures, practices, written and unwritten that discriminate against people. And then there's the cultural level beyond that, which is how people widely define what is right, wrong, normal, the truth, kind of the social conventional wisdoms within a group that can develop these broader norms that make groups maintain power and allow them to lack diversity. And even though I've gotten so off topic, I guess just surrounding the conversation of mental health acceptance and inclusion, even if you're not a part of an organization that says outright, this is against our rules. When you're talking to people, interacting with people, when you're telling people how to live, just be mindful of the things that systematically might not you might not even be aware of but that could be affecting how you're talking to people and even though i'm the one doing this at a personal level currently by lecturing people about you know not listening to religious edicts that disable basic human rights that is what i'm choosing to use my platform for but i think it's just important we all you know are mindful of what affects us how we talk how we think and what impacts that might have on other people because even though you're maybe not the one making the rules. You very well could be the one perpetuating a level of discrimination that could be having a very damaging effect on another person. And, you know, I just want us all to be healthy, happy, to keep our mental health in check, to keep our kids safe, our schools safe, and to have open dialogues about our feelings. And oftentimes I think that uh, religious organizations can adapt a sweep under the rug approach or talk to this one member of the clergy approach. And like, if somebody comes to you with something they're dealing with, the road may be long, you might not be able to help in the, in an immediate sense, or maybe even in a broader sense, things might be beyond your control. But at the very, very least, what we can do is make people feel loved and make people aware that they have resources and ensure that with our actions, we're not perpetuating a system that excludes people that are unlike us. So anyway, soapbox, kick it out from under me. I'm off of it. I'm not, I don't know. It's like, I don't want to be preachy. I'm sorry. I just like, sometimes I talk about such, you know, surface level stuff on this podcast. And I have a lot of (laughs) thoughts with more depth that are always, don't always fit into this format. And I keep telling myself, I'm going to stop rambling, but you know what they say, a uh, leopard midi skirt doesn't change its spots, and nor do I. And why is everyone wearing leopard midi skirts? They've seriously swept the nation. I woke up one morning and they're everywhere. It's kind of like golden goose shoes. America's official shoe designed after the shoe that's hanging over the telephone wire because it's so dingy, it only it only makes sense that it's endured, you know, hours upon hours of inclement weather and isolation, but then to sell them for $500 is... Something I don't entirely understand, but, you know, if and when I get that money, you best bet I will go back on all of this and buy them ASAP because people look fierce as hell wearing a dress in those golden geese. I just need to find like some sort of shoe that's, I mean, like Adidas shoes are cute. Honestly, I'm sure, you know, per our conversation last week, I can get some from Morona or Exhilaration for Target. But unfortunately, I'm going to have to find some sort of uh, tough mudder to run because without getting them you know, dingy to the point of seeming unwearable, I guess they have no value.
Okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to separate out the next episode. This is where I'm going to talk about uh, a few examples of some darker stuff that's gone on in these this broader community in terms of uh, bloggers that just so happen to be members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Not that these crimes are de- directly correlated to their faith, but a coincidence nonetheless. And I think some of these scandals that have infiltrated the blogger verse kind of perhaps add to the fascination. All of the things I'll discuss are things that the people themselves have put on their own social media properties, their own blogs. It's no needless sleuthing. It's no you know speculation. These are things we know that happened with a degree of personal editorialization based on what I've seen online. But, you know, just important to keep in mind. No, no new information, simply uh, summarizing and adding to what's already out there. So go to the next episode for that. Um, hope that hope you didn't mind this hour. I think I wanted to kind of address the feedback, but also address some of what I thought was important to caveat as it relates to this topic overall, because, yeah, it is my podcast and I want to talk about the things that are important to me. And while tolerance and exercising of religious freedoms and all that stuff is very important to me, it's perhaps more important to me at the individual level to be able to encourage, if at all possible, empower people to first and foremost, you know, be their own advocate for their own basic rights, but to also speak up for those in marginalized groups who may not have the platform privilege, ability, etc., to be able to speak up on a broader scale. Um, more important to me than carrying out the belief systems of larger institutions that have things I do and don't agree with from things that are and aren't somewhat antiquated are making sure people alive in this time feel that they have the agency to make their own decisions and to live a good life and to live out the freedoms everyone is supposed to be able to, especially within this country. And I hope you don't mind me taking a moment to talk through some of that. I decided not to put ads in this specific episode. Just, I don't know, didn't feel appropriate. Comes from the heart. Wanted to respect people's feedback. Wanted to have a discussion and not have it be like super heavy and then be like zip recruiter because one other podcast do that i'm like yikes that was a 180 but anyway if you want to support the podcast support the effort that goes into this it seems like it might not but like to say it really takes me like days if not weeks sometimes to like compile information and so if you want to support the podcast go to patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash be there in five f-i-v-e not the number I have a $10 level that people support the deep dives or a $5 super fan level, $2.95 a dollar, whatever. Honestly, I'm just so honored that anybody would give me any of their hard-earned money. And honestly, so many people joining the Patreon in the past month or two has like been why I've been able to spend days and justify the time spent on some of these things because I want it to be worth it for you. I listen to those people the most in the Facebook group and those who sponsor on Patreon in terms of what topics they want to talk about. And um, yeah, it's just never lost on me that uh, you all are so, so supportive. So thank you so much. And with that, so I will catch you in the next episode. Love you so much. As always, let me know your thoughts and I will let you know mine. I'll be there in five. I swear. River and green, be glad to see you when you haven't got a prayer. Boy, you got a prayer in Memphis. Mm-hmm.